Go ahead and stay open to Acts chapter 6. Emily, great job leading us in that. That was really good. I'm glad you said all the names so I don't have to, right? That's a part of it. Uh, so I <laughs> appreciate you. Hey, I wanted, to, I wanted to take a moment and just look at you. And if you want to take a look around the room, you can as well. Uh, I was listening to a preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, walk through Acts chapter 6. And he made the comment that the reason why we as a church, some of you, as a local church, are so interested in Acts is because this is the first history of the church in Acts. And you all are the current history of the church today. And that's why we look at Acts with, with uh, such care and such excitement because we, we identify with this group of people. And in our passage this morning, we're going to hear them address each other as brothers or brothers and sisters. And uh, that you are connected through church history with this family, this church family that we're going to read about. Uh, you, Calvary, some of you, as a church family, are, are so connected with them through the Spirit of God. And so uh, this morning, I want to start with some, some Bible study, if you're, if you're ready for this. Someone, I don't know if you knew this, but we actually, we had three sermons last Sunday. We had three sermons. You probably only heard one of them last week, but we had three, we had a preaching workshop um, before the service, and it was, it was incredible to hear some other men preaching God's Word, and, and uh, Kim Berg and uh, David Sands, and they did a phenomenal job, and, and I would say it was, inc- it was such rich Bible study. And so what I want to do right here at the beginning of our passage is, is I want to I talk about an interpretive tool or really something to avoid. Okay, so we're going to talk about in Acts 1 through 6, or Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, about deacons. And just right off the bat, a lot of people think that Acts chapter 6, 1 through 6, is about deacons. And I'm just going to, I'll give you a hint. Um, If you look in the text, if you look at verse 2, the same word that Paul uses to talk about these deacons and deaconesses in the church is the same word that's used to talk about the comparison of preaching the Word of God to serve. And that word, serve, comes from the same word, diakonos. Comes from the same word. So, so if we were looking in the Greek, like that would, be, that would maybe in our mind think, okay, we're talking about deacons, right? We're not going to become deacons. We're not going to serve tables. Uh, we're going to preach God's Word, And then if you keep going in verse 3, at the very end, maybe your Bible says a point to this ministry or this duty. That's how the ESV translates it, this duty. And that that word is diakonos, coming from the same word, right? It's just one version of diakonos. And, And so that is why some people say we're talking about deacons and, and in our church, we define deacon and deaconesses as this. They are assistants to the pastors to help care for the people of God. That's how our deacon, deaconess teams function within our church. But our deacon and deaconess teams that have been through Alex Strzok's book have heard these words, and I want to share them with you. Alex Strzok, um, who um, 
It's connected with this Camp Elam, says this. He says, the problem with trying to connect the seven of Acts 6 with the later deacons is that neither Luke, the author of Acts, nor Paul, who teaches us about deacons, state such a connection. And so here's the interpretive, the interpretive question or principle is this. To watch in our own life and to watch our preachers and teachers when we make a point of something that might not actually be in the text. Okay, so I'll just tell you, I was getting ready to rip loose this morning. I'm like, yes, we get to teach on deacon, deaconesses this morning. And, and the truth is, I don't think that's what Luke is making a point about. Luke is highlighting that there was a problem, a complaint in the church. And that the apostles in the church were faced with a question. How are we going to address the complaint while still remaining faithful to the purpose or the mission that Jesus has given us? And so what I want to do is I want to I say, even while we get these two words that are so significant to me, I, I think that deacons and deaconesses are so important to care for the church that when we don't have them, and in our church history in the last six years, we've had years without deacons or deaconesses, and people in our church have suffered because of that, and our pastors have not served and shepherded our church well because we haven't had key people, those deacon, deaconesses. And so I love them, highly value them. But that is not what these six verses are about. That's not what these seven are about. Luke states an explicit purpose for us. And so it'd be bad for me to say, here's a passage about deacons when that's not really the case. But here's what Luke does say. He does say that the church is apostle-centric. Right? And, and these are import, important terms for us to understand where we're going in Acts, but we're Jerusalem-centric, right? The church is in Jerusalem and nowhere else. One city church, Jerusalem. And also, there's one church, there's one church leadership structure. It's the apostles. Right now, in the church's history, it's the apostles. And the church grows, we hear it grows in two ways, numerically, and that the spiritual growth of the church expands, grows. Disciples are growing deep roots into Jesus, and a number of people are choosing to follow him. And in verse 1, we hear that that growth leads to a problem. It leads to a problem. Here's the problem. That as people are coming in, different people are coming into the church. And we have two groups here, the Hellenists in the Hebrews. And you know who the Hellenists are, right? It's everybody in the church that's named Helen. No, that's not, it's not it at all, right? Hellenists and the Hebrews. Here's where we need some culture to understand what Luke is getting at. You see, there were two groups of people within the church in Jerusalem. And the primary difference between these two kinds of people was language. Both groups of people were following Jesus under the apostles' leadership and were coming from a Jewish background. Did you catch that? I want to be really clear because, because this is important. 
The only people who are Christians in the church at this point, up to Acts chapter 6, is people who are coming from a Jewish background. People who are worshiping in the temple, and some of them are still worshiping in the temple, but they are now following Jesus, the promised Messiah, the promised King. The difference between the Hellenists and the Hebrews is the Hellenists spoke Greek primarily, and the Hebrews spoke Hebrew. That is the big difference. The primary difference in these groups of people is language. Now, that's the primary difference, and it could have been because of where people were raised, but it, there were political reasons, right? Living under Roman rule, Greek being the common language within the empire at this time. But there was a problem. That one group's widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And, and, here's what, and here's what we see. We don't have the New Testament. <laughs> this is Acts chapter 6, right? We, we don't get the apostles inspired and other people inspired by the Spirit to write what we have today in our digesting, just like, just like Luke is recording what the, apostle, the apostles' ministry right here. They don't have that content. But what they are doing is living out what God's instructed them in the Old Testament and what most of the Jews were following, which is you take care of vulnerable people. And if you go back to the Pentateuch, you'd hear in God's law that came through Moses, you take care of people that are in a hard spot in your community. And there were three people in particular that you were to take care of. And one are the widows that they would need to be cared for in the community in different ways. Now, number two were those that did not have fathers, those that were orphaned. And number three, you took care of the sojourner, those people that were in migration from one place to another. That was a vulnerable spot back then. You didn't have Western Union. You couldn't pick up the phone and call your parents and say, send money, right? But you could depend on, my community's going to help me. And so the daily distribution of food, taking care of the widows was important. And the New Testament church is living out what the Old Testament instructed God's people to do. They were living that out. That's important for us to see. But it's a problem because here's the complaint, and it's a legitimate complaint. The Hellenist widows, they're being overlooked. They need food as well. They're being overlooked in this distribution. They're not being cared for the way that they should be. There's this high priority on caring for people in the community. And so here are two leadership choices that we see in two through four. The apostles say, we are going to focus on word and prayer. So what they do is they say, hey, we are going to safeguard. We're going to protect what we believe is our purpose. And we're also going to affirm that this is a legitimate complaint. This is a, a real concern that we have within our community. We know that this matters. We need to get this right. <laughs> This is going to lead to disunity. This is going to lead to division, all kinds of fights. This is going to lead to alienating people. Legitimately, people are going to be able to walk away from the church and say, I was not cared for. I was left out. Right? We, we don't want that reputation, and neither did the apostles in the first church. They said, we're going to focus on the word, and this is what they meant. Preaching, teaching, evangelizing. We are going to lead that. We are going to do that within the church. That's what we need to focus on, and prayer. Those are the two things we're going to do. We're committed to those things. They're safeguarding them, that we're going to feed people, and we're going to pray for people 
in our church. And they did that in the temples and in the temple in Jerusalem, and they did that in houses as well. Those two different contexts. But they knew their purpose, they knew their lane, they knew what God had called them to do. And I just I want to share a word of application right there before we move on. What we need to hear. A unique calling, not just to the apostles, but you, Calvary, some of you. And when I, I want to call out in particular, you know, pastors in our church and, and deacons, deaconesses, community group leaders, ministry leaders, and everyone, brothers and sisters, we are uniquely called. It was not just the apostles to be able to encourage, to feed people by his word. Not just what we feel like, not just our opinion, not just good advice, but to feed people his word. A word of encouragement. Bringing people back to the three circles, which, which is and can be filled with scripture, right? It's an application of the gospel. There are a ton of verses to use with that. But to encourage people with the Bible. Who in your community is doing that? If we're not doing that as Christians, my point is that nobody will be encouraging people with God's Word. Except maybe, except maybe I don't want to get political, but um, Gavin Newsom made the news right? By using scripture. Totally misinterpreting it, right? But here's what I expect. When you use scripture, you're going to use it rightly to build up God's church, to build up people in their faith. That's your mission. You uniquely and distinctly can fulfill that. Who can pray for people? You can. You can. I, I tell you, we live in the day and age of, of secular humanism, right? And we'll go into that more as we get to the end. But, but, but essentially this, you know, be good people. Be good people. That's the mantra today. I mean, it's so surface level. And, and you, you, with the greatest amount of love, showcase Christ when you say words like, I'm going to pray, what can I pray for you? Because that is a spiritual question that you are asking in a secular, unspiritual age. as a literally a vacuum of spirituality. And you are saying, I, I love you and I want to talk to my God. And you don't need to say all this, but essentially, I want you to think this in your mind. That Jesus, by dying on the cross for me, has given me access to pour out my heart to him. And that he listens and he responds with love and grace and mercy. And he always answers prayer requests. I, just, I, I, don't, I don't know how he's going to answer a lot of them, but we will see. I have that kind of access with, with the God who created everything, who created you in his very image. And I get to talk to him about you. Is there anything I can pray for you? Or can I pray for you, what you just shared? There is no greater statement of love for our secular humanist age to say, I want to bring your needs before my God that I have a spiritual relationship with. 
His Spirit's in me. He's actually, He, the Holy Spirit, is praying prayers that are too deep for even me to understand, too complex for me to know. He's doing that through me. It is very spiritual, and I'd love to pray for you. Don't use all those words, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the power of simple words like, I'm going to pray for you. Thanks for sharing that. Or, can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? To people that might not know Jesus. And those three circles, encouraging words. I, I'll just show you, ton, you know, like my story of, yeah, Kim felt guilt, you know, by Travis sharing. You know, I felt some guilt. Here's how I felt it. Last Sunday, um, you know, the kids and I and Heather were sitting around the dinner table Sunday night, and, uh, and we threw out a piece of paper and pen and let the kids draw the circles, and they did, and they, they explained them. And, and then they called their aunt and uncle on FaceTime <laughs> in Kansas City and walked them through the three circles. And my brother-in-law, Michael, is a Presbyterian pastor, and he said, wow. That was so clear. You did such a good job. He said, Titus, Joel, do you know that next month we're going to teach that to everybody in our church? And now I'm going to be able to tell adults that my niece and nephew, right, six and eight years old, taught me the three circles. That's how clear it is. How powerful is that? Who are you going to share with and who are you going to ask those questions? They are powerful. You are the only ones. And the apostles show us, we know this is our purpose. Calvary, some of you, do you know we're not apostles, but that this is our purpose? A high priority of the word, a high priority on caring through prayer. And so while they say, this is what we must do, and they safeguard this, they say, this is a legitimate issue. We need to appoint people they delegate. They delegate. Hear that, Gabe. Hear that. They delegate things. This is important. If you lead any ministry, if, if you work in any way in a growing company, you understand that you have to delegate things. You cannot continue to do the same things that you're doing if you're going to grow. You need to delegate responsibilities. And so they need to delegate this responsibility of caring for these, these widows, and they choose, they decide, seven men. And this isn't just the apostles. They bring this idea to the church family, the brothers. We could say brothers and sisters, the family of God. And they say discern seven men. And here's what, here's, here's what they focus on. First of all, this is men. They, they are looking for leaders within the church, and I don't think these are, are deacons. Uh, they don't, Luke doesn't identify these men as deacons. The apostles are trying to get away from deacon table. Right? Those two words. And, and these seven actually never get the label, the office of deacon. But what we see is a creative solution by the apostles to delegate some authority, some leadership to these seven. And first of all, they, they are, they're men. The second is, the qualification is they have to have a good reputation. And this is what we mean by good reputation, that they are known within the community as trustworthy, that they can count on them, that people trust them. That's important. 
Thirdly, that they're full of the Holy Spirit. And here's what that looks like. They are walking a clear path. They know this is where God's Spirit is leading them because we see in their actions the fruit of the Spirit in different contexts, patience, in different contexts, gentleness and kindness, whether it's in their neighborhood or in their family or, or in the church community that they see spiritual fruit, that they are walking on the path that the Spirit wants them to. What's explicit in Scripture. And then lastly, they're full of wisdom. And this is why wisdom is key in this role, because they are going to have to make decisions, daily decisions. I mean, people are giving generously, and yet there aren't infinite amount of funds. I mean, this is, a, this is amazing. This is a daily distribution of food. You know, the, the food pantries around us and that I love to support and be a part of, they're handing out groceries more at like a weekly rhythm, right? But what's life like here? It's, it's you know, looking at what, what can we provide for people that need within our church today? And, and we'll, we'll let tomorrow worry about itself tomorrow. That's in God's hands. I think that's amazing to just take a look at the culture, the rhythm, the daily needs of the church. Now, this is interesting. All these qualifications, these are explicit. This is what Luke highlights. This is what's stated by the apostles in the church. This is what they agree to, that character matters a lot in these leaders. And, and yet, um, just because I've read people that are way smarter than me, all of these people are Hellenists. All of these men are Hellenists. They're Greek speakers. If you look at their name, and this is where I'm getting from commentaries and have to lean on, on, uh, on other people, is that they're, they're all Greek-speaking Jews who are a part of the church. All these seven. We're going to make sure that the Hellenists are... Uh, widows are not overlooked, and so we're actually going to appoint, and they end up, even though Luke doesn't make this explicit, he doesn't say, and they must be Hellenists. That's who they end up choosing, is seven men who represent, who, who are going to make sure that the Hellenist widows are not overlooked. It's not explicit, but it's described in the story. And so they choose the magnificent seven. First, we hear about Stephen, and this is important. He's going to be a character we come back to next week. Stephen is full of faith and full of the Spirit. Full of faith means that if you look at his life, you can see where he believes God in all different kinds of ways. That he trusts God, that he's taking steps of faith where God needs to continue to be good and gracious, where he needs to continue to save people in Jerusalem. And you can see from Stephen's life that he is taking those steps of belief. You know, it's like James 2.26, right? Like his faith is alive, and how can you see it in his works, in his life? That's Stephen for you. And then Philip is mentioned, and a number of others, that Emily did a great job pronouncing their names. Way to go. I, I, think, I think these saints right here, you know, these seven, they felt blessed. They're like, Emily got our name right. So good job. I'm not even going to repeat their names. But they were all Hellenist Jews. That's what we need to understand. But there's one glaring missing qualification. I'm not going to make a big point about this, but since it's, I've heard it, I want, to, I want to bring it up. 
Preaching, teaching, evangelism is nowhere in the qualifications. It's all character, and it's not a competency to evangelize. It's not a competency to um, apologize for the faith. And, And in that sense, I mean to defend the faith. It's not a competency to preach or to teach. But that doesn't mean that these seven weren't engaged at different levels. Stephen is is one of the the greatest apologists making a defense for the faith. Next week, he's going to get in trouble for defending the faith so powerfully through the Spirit. And and then he's going to follow that up with one of the richest sermons in Acts. But it's not what qualified him to partake in this ministry right here. Philip. Philip is going to lead the apostles, by example, in boldness to share the gospel with the first person, the first convert, who is not Jewish. Philip is going to be the first evangelist to step foot into Samaria. That didn't belong, right, in this Jewish Jerusalem church. Philip is going to lead evangelism. But how are they first mentioned right here? They're a part of the Magnificent Seven. (laughs) They're the seven who are the creative solution to help the unity of the church so that the apostles and the church can be a bold witness. We have the seven who are maintaining unity and caring for people. And if there is carelessness in the church, you better believe there will not be unity in the church. And these seven step up to serve in a special way. And right here, they're appointed in verse 6 and then commissioned by the apostles. And I love this picture that when, uh, when they decide that these seven are going to have some level of authority in the church, they place hands on them. And we get this picture. It's a picture from the Old Testament. One of the first people to do that would be Moses and Joshua, as far as leadership is concerned, Moses was the guy. He spoke the words of God. The law of God came through Moses. He went up to Mount Sinai. He met with God, and he came down, and he spoke word from God. Leadership from God came through Moses, and then Moses' life is about to end And he places his hands in front of all of Israel on Joshua, leaving no doubt in our mind, in the people of Israel's mind, Joshua is our leader. And the authority that Moses had, Joshua has. In the same way, the apostles, they make it clear. They have authority. These seven are going to lead within our church. It's a powerful picture. But, but here's how I want us to apply this. I've got, I've got three ways, and, and I'm going to briefly talk about the two, and I want to land on the third for a couple minutes. God's value shines forth in a unified and growing community. It didn't have to go this way. Many churches have faced problems like like this church did in the division between the Hellenist widows and the Hebrew widows. 
and someone gets left out. Someone is uncared for. But right here, we see God's value shine through. Uh, Firstly in this, that God loves his church and cares for his people. He cares for his people. You and I should read this passage, and, 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 and while I feel like right now I don't have much to identify with the Hellenist widows, you know, except that I'm a Gentile, but, but these are actually Jews, so I, I don't have much to identify with them, and yet here's what you and I need to hear. First level, so important. If you are in Christ, if you are a part of his church, no matter if you feel validated, you know, no matter if you feel like people hear you, no matter what you feel like, if you're cared today, if people know your needs, that God cares for you, that you're a part of his church. And as we see him care for specific people, as the church is in action, you need to know and be confident that God loves you and cares for you because you're in Christ, because you turned and you follow him. You need to hear that. Secondly, that God moves the gospel forward. Church, you and I need to hear our vision mission statement in this, that there was a priority on the word. And I think sometimes we we miss this by like, hey, uh, you mean like the sermon on Sunday? There's a priority on the word. No, there's a priority on the word that we are singing the word, that we are hearing the word spoken, that we are proclaiming the word, and that, and I love that we're beginning to lead this, that we are affirming, I'm receiving, I will believe, and I'll practice this in my life. That shows a priority on the word. And for you and I as a church, we need a priority on the word. And secondly, a priority on prayer. That if you feel like at your community group, prayer is tacked on. If you feel like in the church, we could highlight and pray more or better, you share that in appropriate, encouraging, building up ways. Because we as a church need to be faithful in those two things, God's word and prayer. They are our fuel. They are our sustenance that God has given us. But thirdly, this, and this is so important, God empowers people of faith and spirit expressed in character. How do we see the spirit dwelling in people? How do we see people step into more and more ministry? We see seven new leaders in one day step into a new leadership role that wasn't even there. But what was a big deal? It was their character. It was their character. Dr. Dr. Moeller says this, the president of Southern Seminary, he says this about character in your leaders. And I'm saying this, that we have to love our church by caring about our character. If, if Luke, inspired by the Spirit, highlights this, that these leaders were chosen not because they were liked, not because they were like Saul, they were the tallest, they were the most, you know, They had the most charismatic personality. No, it was character. It was character. Al Mohler says this, leadership requires the possession and cultivation of certain moral virtues that allow leadership to happen. If the leader does not demonstrate these essential virtues, disaster is certain. If we remove character from the people that we follow inside of the church and outside the church, disaster 
is certain. He gives us five qualities for Christian leaders in particular, for Christian leaders. And I want to briefly talk about them. The first is this, honesty. It means speaking the truth. You know, this is a tough situation, and the apostles said, honestly, we cannot step away from this ministry. But truthfully, this is a problem for the church. They were honest about the situation. We want to correctly address it. Secondly, dependability. Can you trust the people that are leading you? Dependability. This, this tells us the question of commitment. Are they committed to my good? Can I depend on them that when I, I need them, they'll be able to speak words of life. They'll be able to pray for me. They'll know that that's sustenance for me. Thirdly, loyalty. And, uh, and we got to define loyalty in this day and age. And, and so here's what I mean by loyalty, that first and foremost, they were loyal to Jesus. They were loyal to Jesus. Their heart was bonded to him. They wanted to make much of him. Secondly, that they were committed to his people, his people. And that thirdly, they were committed to his mission. They see that loyalty right here. And we're going to see that, especially in Stephen and Philip. Determination. What do we mean by that? The tenacity of purpose to follow through. To follow through. I am going to do what I say. Right? That's determination. That when we say this is what we're going to do, I'm even going to honestly examine, are we doing this well or not? Oh, we, we are doing this poorly. We need to change that because we committed to doing this, that, or the other thing. And then lastly, humility. And here's what we mean by humility. That your talents, that your gifts are a part of God's goodness. The talents and gifts that you and I possess, they are good. They're, they're goodness from God to be used to build up his people. And not for me to enter a position or you to enter power to get what you want. That's humility. Our talents, our gifts, they're from God. They're good, and they're to be used for his people. That's what we see right here in this story. Secondly, okay, if we love God's church, then we should expect character in our leaders, and we should expect no less. But secondly, we should also look for character in your community, in your community. You need to know who's leading you, right? And right here, we get to see the community of the of the first church, and I love what Bob Thune says, and I, I think pastors, leaders uh, can identify with this. I think many of you in here could identify with this. You ready? Bob Thune says about Christian community and character and leaders, he says, leadership is lonely because the dangers posed by needy, divisive, power-hungry people. Spiritual leaders can easily isolate themselves from true community. And when I say leaders, I don't just mean pastors. I mean people that are leading a community group. That is your community. You're a part of the community group before you're leading it, right? That you need community. And sometimes that's hard for leaders to find community for a number of different reasons. But he goes on. He said, they can focus on shepherding the flock and forget that they are part of Jesus' flock. This is a tragic mistake. None of us can see our own faces, 
You, everyone in here, leaders included, you need people around you who know you well and whom you can trust with the honest truth about yourself. You need a community who will encourage you in the gospel and help you see your own sin, unbelief, idolatry. Leaders, brothers and sisters, you need people to know you, but you need to know who you can trust with. I mean, my sin, my idolatry, I need to know who I can trust in community, and you need to know who you can trust in community. Uh, the self-help movement today has applied it in this way, that, that you need people who will only encourage you around you. You can't have anybody that you're reaching down to help. You, you got to get rid of those relationships. If you really want to succeed, then you need only people around you that are encourage you, motivate you. you got, basically, you got to surround yourself with motivational coaches. That's the kind of person you need. You don't need anybody else. If that person deals with anxiety, then cut them out of your life. Be done with them. And I am not saying that. I'm not saying that. In your community group, you should have two kinds of people. People that encourage you to grow in spiritual maturity that you look up to, that you could share what you're struggling with. And you also need people that you show up to community group because you are there to reach down and encourage them. Because you have the spiritual maturity to know what they're walking through, how to encourage them with God's word. You need both in community, but what you need to understand is who can I trust? What voices in my community? And how are you going to know? You're going to know it by their character. Bob Thune says that there are people that are needy, divisive, and power hungry. And here's what I'm saying. Don't entrust the garbage in your soul that you are processing, confessing, turning from to those people. Because they might give you something like, oh, that's okay, or that's normal. You know, it's fine. I'm like that too. Don't, don't, don't listen to that voice. Right? You need to share with somebody that is going to know how to speak the gospel to your soul. Someone who's going to know the difference between this person, you know, this person is just pushing forward in their sin. It's unrepentant. They need to know the difference between that and someone who is sharing and saying, I just feel like I'm under my guilt, like I'm condemned. I hate this sin. I want to get rid of it, but it just keeps coming up. And spiritually mature people know the difference. And what I'm saying is share, share with those people that you can trust. You need to see that character in the community that you can fight in in those ways. And then lastly, the character in our life, in our life, in our own heart, character in your life. Our culture defines secular humanist character with this mantra, be a good person. And, and as one person among many that has turned to follow Jesus, we realize that's well-meaning, but wow, that falls sh far short of the spiritual nature of being made in God's image, of needing a relationship with him, of grace and mercy. And, and that you and I get to reject that and should. It's not about being a good person. In fact, I want to illustrate this, be a good person. I was so looking forward to this book. It's the Children's Illustrated Jewish Bible. It is, it is super cool. I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Some good stories um, throughout the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. And in the foreword, I was just 
This is so interesting to me to hear secular humanist propaganda in a kid's Jewish Bible. The very first words. What does it mean to be Jewish? It means trying to be a good person and treating everyone around you the way you would like to be treated and working to make the world a better place and trusting that God will be pleased with the way you live your life. I thought, wow, what, what a strong secular humanist philosophy with, with a little bit of works righteousness. Just trust that God will be pleased with your life. I thought, wow, that was striking when I picked this up from the library to read some stories to my kids. Secular humanist propaganda is everywhere. We cannot be a good person. It is so much more than that, that we must be spiritual, that we must be spirit-empowered, that people need to see a fruit that is unexplainable from Gabe and how he lives his life, but is given credit to God and his spirit. Right here, we see these are spirit-filled people and that you and I would embrace that spiritual, that miraculous nature of God did a work deep down in our soul to change who we are, to make us his. And that means the trajectory, the path that we're on, we are living in God's spirit, filled by him, empowered by him. Before the face of God, we don't, we don't just live on this earth to be a good person for a few good years. No. No, we get to live before the face of God, knowing that he has poured his spirit into us. And our, our character matters because our character flows from our relationship with God, the spirit being in us. Our character matters. Character counts as we reflect Jesus as his spirit dwells in us. Well, last, we see, that we see this. The gospel flourishes by character. Verse 7. This is no fluke. Jesus describes this seed, the gospel being sown and multiplying a hundredfold. And we see that coming true right here. As the apostles preserved the care, love, unity in the church by delegating, we see the gospel flourish through those decisions. And as the gospel flourishes, the church continues to preserve the gospel is the main thing. What they're about won't get rid of it. And we get this note of, of even while the high priest and his family, Caiaphas' Caiaphas's family, continues to persecute the apostles and the church, we also hear that there are so many priests that join this movement, that join the church, that join the family of Jesus. That's credibility that Luke is showing us. This is the real deal. The priests are joining them. I want to encourage you, when we put character as the main thing, before we make decisions, before we appoint people, before we give position or title that we say, we want to see the character of Jesus. We want to help develop that. That is the most important thing for us that we will see these other things follow. Faithfulness means putting character first. Let me pray that for us.
Jesus, I pray that you would help us to keep the main thing, the main thing. That your gospel calls us to a restored relationship with you. That that is a blessing and that that is power for us. That is the light switch being turned on to know that your spirit is in us, working in us. So God, I pray that you do that. This morning, I pray that you would, you would help each one of us to see what character are you growing in us. That we would long for character that reflects Jesus. That we would accept nothing less in our leaders. I pray that you would help us to be a community that is growing, that many people will find refuge and help that are struggling with different challenges and have someone here, a brother or sister, that they can trust in community to confide in, to find help, and to hear the refreshing news of the gospel applied to their life in their situation. In Jesus' name that I pray, amen.